Hi, my name is Catherine. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 7. Instead, you must search for the location the Lord your God will select from all your tribes to put his name there as his residence, and you must go there. You must bring your entirely burned offerings, your sacrifices, your tenth part gifts, your contributions, your payments for solemn promises, your spontaneous gifts, and the oldest offspring of your herds and flocks to that place. You will have a feast there, each of you and your families, in the Lord your God's presence, and you will celebrate all you have done because the Lord your God has blessed you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, I'm Kay. Uh, the New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. What I mean is this, the one who sows a small number of seeds will also reap a small crop, and the one who sows a generous amount of seeds will also reap a generous crop. Everyone should give whatever they have decided in their heart. They shouldn't give with hesitation or because of pressure. God loves a cheerful giver. God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. That way, you will have everything you always need and in everything to provide more than enough for every kind of good work. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Randy Johnson. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 11, 39 through 42. The Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and platter, but your insides are stuffed with greed and wickedness. Foolish people, didn't the one who made the outside also make the inside? Therefore, give to those in need from the core of who you are, and you will be clean all over. How terrible for you Pharisees. You give a tenth of your mint, rue, and garden herbs of all kinds, while neglecting justice and love for God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come to you, our generous God. And we ask today that as we talk about your scriptures, that you would send your Holy Spirit on us, that you would open our minds to understand, that you would help us to hear with attentive ears, but most importantly, that you would reach down into our hearts, that you would begin to change and transform us into the image and likeness of your Son, that our entire lives might give witness to you, the God who lives and reigns forever. In your name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. All right, you may be seated. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jason Jackson. I am one of the associate pastors here at New Life Downtown. I uh, want to say, again, a special welcome to all of you who are visiting with us. We're absolutely delighted that you're here and pray that throughout the course of our entire service together, you've encountered the presence of the living Christ at work in our midst. We also want to say a special hello to everybody watching online, assuming on a day like today when the weather is a little bit nasty and the roads are a little rough, uh, that there's more people streaming online today than on 
on other Sundays. So for those of you who are turning in online, welcome. We look forward to seeing you back here when you're able uh, to make it. Well, this is uh, the third and final week in a very short series that we've uh, chosen to kind of talk about at the start of this new year. The series is entitled Essentials. And in the context of this series, what we're doing is we're talking about some of the essential practices of the church. What are the kinds of things that the church does? What are the kinds of things that we do as Christians that help us to encounter the grace of God in our lives? What are those practices? And really, when we're talking about Christian practices, we're in many ways talking simply about ordinary activities. Ordinary activities that are shaped in particular ways to help usher us into the story of God and orient our lives to the things that are good and true. So there are ordinary things that we do, but we shape them in particular ways that through them the Holy Spirit might shape us into the image and likeness of Jesus. So we began three weeks ago with Pastor Glenn talking to us about a particular way of reading. Reading is an everyday activity. And yet we read the scriptures in particular ways that we might enter into God's story and find our identity and significance and guidance within the grand story that God is telling. So we read in a particular way. Then last week, Glenn and Holly and Lori talked to us about particular ways of keeping time. There's probably nothing more ordinary than keeping time than all of the different ways that we do that. And yet through things like the church calendar and Sabbath and a rule of life, we're able to keep time in a particular way that helps us to keep company with Jesus, to walk with him and follow him in all of the kind of areas and avenues and times and rhythms and seasons of our life. So it's a very particular way of doing that. Well, today uh, we're going to talk about giving about generosity, about uh, what, how we can shape our financial resources in particular ways that help us keep company with Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you're already suspicious, <laughs> right? There's something about talking about money in church that just brings something up inside of us. They're like, oh no, <laughs> It's either like, here they go again, or I think it's time to go catch the game early today. <laughs> There's something that comes up inside of us, and I want to say to you, me too. Like, I feel that same kind of thing. There's this, a, a certain part of me that want to come to give messages like this that you do so with an extra amount of kind of fear and trepidation. Uh, for me, a lot of that kind of angst actually happened really early on for me in my sort of uh, initial years as a Christian. Just a couple years after coming to be a follower of Jesus, I headed off to a Christian university. Uh, and in the context of the Christian university that I attended, I heard and saw some of the most ridiculous things that I have ever seen and heard and thought about in relationship to this. Uh, at certain points in time, my freshman year, I heard a televangelist come in at chapel uh, and was talking about how he was confident that God wanted to give him a plane uh, and told him to name that plane Willie. Um, and then every time he saw a plane of that model, he should roll down his window, stick his head out and say, Willie! and call the plane, and eventually God gave him the plane. And I was like, really? <laughs> uh, Lori Duncan shared with me this week an article on the Babylon Bee that said, you know, what happens in those situations is somebody in the congregation stands up and names and claims that very thing that was just given to that televangelist. 
might create some sort of interesting dynamics. Uh, at one point in the chapel service, we had someone asked the entire congregation to stand up and pretend to pull a lever and say, money cometh to me now, over and over and over again. Uh, at times, I saw college students rushing to the front of the auditorium, piling cash um, at the, you know, sort of during the worship service, kind of piling cash on and thinking, man, these are folks who are going 60, 70, 80, $90,000 in debt uh, to be at this school. Uh, after we left, I heard a story of uh, the chapel speaker who told the students that they should no longer be eating ramen noodles, but they should be eating steak dinners. Um, and that this is the habit that they should get into as a way of sort of, you know, demonstrating their faith that God's going to provide. And all the while, the uh, prominent leader, the president of the university, was misusing funds uh, and, and eventually ended up leading to the, that president's dismissal. And so there's all of these kind of things happening and all of this kind of ugliness in the background. And it led to all sorts of suspicions for me, like, how do we trust uh, this kind of theology? Can we even trust it? Uh, and what about people's motives? And then the first church I worked at was a fantastic church. Uh, I ended up being there for an incredibly long period of time. It was a very formative community for me. Uh, but the church went through a major crisis just a couple of years in. Uh, and most of that crisis was, uh, was generated and created by the uh, fall of the senior and founding pastor, uh, which included um, some various kinds of immorality, but one of those things was misuse of money, misuse of funds, and all of the kind of ramifications that that has for the staff and the church and those things. And so I'm with you. I understand that, that these are tense conversations. And yet at the same time, we can't get away from the fact that the Bible talks a whole lot about money. That as we read through the pages of the Old and the New Testament, there's all sorts of things that are being said in here about our economic lives. And if we are really going to bring our entirety of our lives under the Lordship of Jesus, if we are going to follow him in every way of our lives, then this is an area that we have to talk about. Because this is a significant area of our lives. Think about how much time and energy that we spend into the creation of wealth and deciding what to do in terms of how we spend or save or what we do with that. It's a significant part of our lives. And it's a, because of that, it's a significant part of our discipleship. It's a significant part of our life with Jesus. And so we're going to dive in and talk about those things today. And particularly what I want to do is talk uh, about something that is probably the most common topic talked about in the context of church when it comes to giving. If you've been around the church very long, that when churches or church leaders talk about giving, the most common word that comes up in the middle of it is the word tithe. That there's this idea or concept of tithing that comes to us out of the Old Testament, and it's this idea of giving 10% of one's earnings. The encouragement to tithe, to give away 10% of what income we bring in. And yet, if you've also been around the church a long time, you know there's all sorts of like controversy and debate around this that not everybody talks about this or sees this in the same way. For some, when they talk about tithing, they'll present it as a standard, that this is what all Christians should give or what all Christians should strive to give. And so it's kind of presented in this way as a, 
sort of universal, everybody should give 10%. And at the same time, the backside of that almost seems like, and after that, God doesn't have anything else to say about money. That it's just kind of this flatline standard. Others will say, no, it's actually kind of more of a starting point. That a tithe is a place that we should begin and then practice from there what it means to live more sort of like generous lives. And so a 10% becomes, instead of a standard, becomes more of a starting point. Uh, for others, though, if you've been around church for a while, you've maybe heard uh, folks really minimize a tithe and say, well, actually, Jesus in the New Testament say very little about tithing. Therefore, it's one of those things in the Old Testament that we've kind of left behind. Um, and really, it doesn't matter how much we give. Uh, people should just, you know, give if they can. Um, and that's really all the Bible and the New Testament has to say. So there's this kind of minimizing. The other hand, as you may have heard, uh, a lot of conversations around tithing make the tithe to be something almost magical, right? That if you tithe, then the Lord will open the heavens and you'll have more than you could every possi ever possibly think or want or need or imagine. And it becomes something that is almost like a key that unlocks something. Uh, and that if you do this, it sort of mandates that God will do something else. and becomes this kind of tense relationship. And I would say that I think all of those perspectives have flaws inside of them. Now, all of them lack some things that we actually find in the text of the Old Testament. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about some of the texts in the Old Testament, focus on those and what it actually says about tithing, and see how that might shape our giving practices today to kind of go back and look at some of them. I'm going to focus particularly in the book of Deuteronomy and some of the things that Deuteronomy says. We find other things, Leviticus and Numbers and other places, but we're going to focus there. And today is going to be a little bit more didactic than normal. I have like seven points. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot more of uh, those things. But I think it's important just because there's so much kind of tension and confusion and controversy around these things uh, that I want to walk through a little bit more slowly if that's okay with you. Good? All right, first point, here we go. First point, I think in the Old Testament, tithing is about politics, not percentages. Tithing is about politics, not percentages. Throughout the ancient Near East, when we look at all of the cultures in and around Israel, kings routinely taxed their citizens at 10%. The idea of 10% is, comes from this culture into the context of Israel in this particular way to help Israel understand that Yahweh is her king. That is the primary point. It's not the percentage. The percentage is something that's borrowed and brought in as a way of helping point beyond itself to a deeper truth and a deeper reality. That it's saying, Israel, Yahweh, your God, the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, brought you to himself, brought you into this land flowing with milk and honey, who made a covenant to be your sovereign God. This God who loves you is your king. Don't forget that. That it comes out of that perspective. And we find that actually continue in Jesus that Jesus is one of his more uh, important teachings on money. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. 
there's something about finances that connects to our loyalty, our allegiances, and to who it is that we understand is in control or in charge of our lives. So what we do with our money reveals our ultimate allegiances. Now, our ultimate allegiance, what we are deeply committed to, what we deeply believe, ultimately comes out and is expressed in our finances. It comes out there. Tithing is about politics. It's about God being king more than it is about percentages. Second point, the tithe in the Old Testament is not the sole, supreme, or universally required financial contribution for God's people. It's not the sole, supreme, or universally required financial contribution for God's people. It is not the only gift that we see. It is one of the gifts that we see in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, when we find the word tithe, it's always plural. It's tithes. There's something more going on here than this, this one 10%. Even the passage that we just read in Deuteronomy says this. It says, bringing there your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes or your tenth parts, your donations, your votive gifts, your free will offerings, and the first things of your herds and your flocks. But this is one aspect. It's not the sole aspect. Secondly, then, 10% was part of Israel's giving, not the height of their giving. It was part of their giving, not the height of it. That we do have these tithes, but then we also have offerings coming up inside of there. But if you continue to read throughout books like Deuteronomy, you find that this is just part of what's going on financially for God's people. They're also instructed to lend generously to those in need without charging interest. They're instructed not to the harvest to the very edges of their field so that the poor and the orphan and the widow and the immigrants might come and have access to food. That is at a financial loss or sacrifice to the farmer. That we find every seven years if somebody has become indebted to them and is working to pay off the debt, that that debt is forgiven. And not only that, but when they send the person out or release them from the debt, they're supposed to send them out with a bunch of resources, to send them out so they get a fresh start. And then every 50 years, as they've accumulated land, maybe from other families, that, that land is supposed to return to the family it originally belongs to. Those are things we can't tie percentages to. It's a kind of generous life that God is calling his people into. The third point in the midst of that is we also see that it's not mandatory, the tithe is not mandatory for all Israelites. That in ancient Israel, ancient Israel is an agrarian society, and when we talk about the tithe in the Old Testament, it's primarily a giving of 10% of the land's produce and the firstborn from the flocks and herds. So this is kind of what the tithe is connected to. So if you do not have land and you do not have animals, in other words, if you're a widow, if you're an orphan, if you're an immigrant, if you're a priest, a Levite, a Levite, if you're poor or if you're marginalized, you do not tithe in the midst of this setting. They still brought offerings, still brought other things to the Lord. But even as we look through the instructions in Leviticus, we find that what God invites them and asks them to bring is significantly dependent upon what their financial condition is. 
that God is a compassionate God. That God sees where people are at financially and he takes that into account. When we see this then kind of moving into the New Testament, we see that the New Testament doesn't ever minimize any of these kinds of things. The New Testament doesn't reduce or restrict giving. If anything, the New Testament radicalizes it. It continues this idea of God's people being a generous kind of people. Think about the teaching of John the Baptist. People are saying, hey, what, 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 must, what must we do to prepare for the Messiah? And he says, anybody that has two of something should give one of those away. We find Jesus and a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I ha- do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him to sell everything and give it to the poor. The guy walks away sad. Jesus confronts the Pharisees in our gospel reading, and we find that the Pharisees are tithing even products that are not required to be tithed in the Old Testament. They're meticulous about their tithing, yet they've missed love and justice. They've missed the idea of being generous to the poor, to the orphan, to the widow, to the immigrants in their community. They've missed something even by holding on to the strictnesses of the percentages. And we see even in Acts of the early church that those with, with means periodically sold land and houses and gave all of the proceeds away. There's a sort of radical generosity. And so I think when we talk about tithing, um, as a standard inside of Christianity, I think we're presented with a couple of problems. I think one of those problems is, is that for those of us with means, again, it suggests that 10% is kind of the baseline and what we do with everything else doesn't matter. And I think just talking about 10% with those with means fails to call us into radical sort of simplicity and generosity. And at the same time, Asking those without means to give 10% heaps a world of guilt and shame upon them. That I think when we're talking about folks who make six figures or seven figures, that 10% should not be the conversation. The conversation should be about simplicity and generosity. And when we find a conversation with a single parent who's working three jobs to feed his or her four kids, and trying to make all the household work, that that conversation should be a different conversation than asking them to give 10%. Amen? Third thing that we find in the, New Testament, or in the Old Testament, tithes and offerings are brought to the temple and presented to God as an act of worship. The tithes and offerings are brought to the temple and presented to God as an act of worship. One of the really key things about Deuteronomy is that Deuteronomy is particularly interested with centralizing worship in Jerusalem and bringing everybody to Jerusalem and centralizing worship there. So we find this like in Deuteronomy 14. It says, set apart a tithe of all the yield of your seed that is brought in, from, uh, brought in yearly from the field. In the presence of the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose as a dwelling for his name, i.e. the temple, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, your wine, and your oil, as well as the firstlings of your herd and flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. It's a sense of bringing the tithe into the temple and giving it away as an act of worship so that we might learn to fear the Lord our God. The fear here is not the kind of fear that we think of in terms of terror. 
Fear is an awe, it's a respect, it's a reverence. It's a way of recognizing that it's God who created all things, therefore it is God who owns all things, and he's given them to us as gifts, and we return part of it to him in worship, in gratitude, in thanksgiving. It's a way of recognizing that these things are not simply the product of our hands but all of the resources and even the ability to work and the jobs that we have and the skills that we've been given, all of these are gifts from God. And so this, what we've produced is not simply done in and of ourselves, but it's done in participation with God. And so we recognize it's all his to begin with and bring it into the temple as an act of worship. We see this continuing in the New Testament in the early church, that the people of God are continuing to bring their financial gifts to the local fellowship in worship, that they placed a priority on both the place of worship and giving being an act of worship, that it is a sense, a worshipful act, as Glenn was talking about during our joy time today. Now, please do not hear me saying that this doesn't mean that we don't give to parachurch ministries and to missionaries and all of those kinds of things. It's not what I'm saying at all. My wife and I give to, uh, significantly to various ministries and to missionaries that is part of our giving, and yet we also prioritize the local fellowship because uh, we find that there is something about the local church that is part of God's redemptive plan in the world, and so we prioritize that while we also give in these other places is we have amazing ministries here in town that do absolutely wonderful things and we want to participate and contribute in that as well. So please don't hear me saying that we don't give to those kinds of things. Just simply saying that there is a priority in the text on the place of our fellowship and giving as an act of worship. All right, number four. And this one may be the hardest for all of us. That God entrusts his tithes and offerings to religious leaders to priests and to Levites in the Old Testament and then continuing on through church history. We find this clearly in Numbers 18. The Lord spoke to Aaron, I have given you charge of the offerings made to me. That there's a sense that we entrust these things to God who's entrusted them to us and he entrusts them to those that he's put in place of leadership in local fellowships. This continues in the book of Acts as they sold their property, they came and they placed them at the apostles' feet. And the apostles were entrusted to follow the Lord's guidance and discernment in giving these things. And so one of the questions that we have to ask in the midst of as we're bringing our worship is, is the place that we're giving our tithes and our offerings, the place that we're giving generously, is it a trustworthy place? And are the leaders trustworthy? in the middle of that. It's an important question to ask. It's one that we should ask. And it's one that thankfully I can say is somewhat new to New Life downtown. I've been here a year now that I've been really impressed with some of the things that New Life has set up in order to kind of make sure that we are stewarding the gifts and resources that God entrusts to us well. For example, uh, New Life is one of only a couple hundred churches in the entire country that is part of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, uh, which means there's an outside agency that we pay significant sort of resources to to make sure that we are uh, staying in line and in step and that there is accountability outside of us 
for how it is that we're using resources. This requires multiple signatures for purchases and requires yearly audits. Uh, it's things that make sure that finances are being handled well. Then there are times that even uh, as I've been on staff where we filled out a purchase order for something and submitted it into the finance department and gotten questions back. And there's a, a sense that you can be like, come on, why are you questioning us? <laughs> but for me, there's a sense like, I'm so glad that the people in our finance department, that this, these are the kinds of questions that they ask. And they're going to continue to ask them of us. If there's anything that they're like, I need more explanation before I put my signature on this, they're going to ask for it. In fact, at the bottom of some of our finance team's email addresses, uh, in their tagline, it says, we are spending people's worship. And there's this clear recognition that all that we do with the resources that entrust to us are your worship. And we don't handle that lightly, but it's a sacred and reverent kind of decision and discernment about what we do with the resources entrusted to us. All right, fifth point. The tithes and offerings in the Old Testament supported the temple, its leaders, and the poor that we find all of these things being included in there. An example of this is the third year tithe in Deuteronomy 14. It says, every third year you shall bring the full tithe of your produce for that year and store it within your towns. The Levites, because they have no allotment or no inheritance with you, in other words, they have no land, as well as the resident aliens, the immigrants or strangers, the orphans and the widows in your towns, so that they may come and eat their fill, so the Lord may God may bless you in the work that you undertake. There is a sense that the tithes and offerings, uh, they are going to the support and running of the religious institutions within the society, as well as caring for the leaders, but not at the exclusion of the orphan and the widow and the immigrant and the stranger and the poor within the community. And so that is part of what happens with the worship that you bring, that there is a portion of it that does go to paying for my salary and the rest of our team. I can say that we run a pretty lean team to try to keep those things as less as we possibly can, while at the same time not trying to burn out any of our team and making sure that they're cared for in the midst of that. So part of your worship does go to that. But also 12.5% of anything that comes into New Life Church immediately is designated for outreach. It's designated for things like the dream centers of Colorado Springs, the places like Mary's home and the women's clinic and places that we're caring for those on the edges of our uh, society. Part of it does go to things like Springs Rescue Mission and other activities and things that are happening in our city that are incredibly important and critical. So 12.5% of that right away goes into those kinds of things, uh, caring for those in our city. All right, number six. Uh, we got two left. You hanging with me? All right. <laughs> Number six, tithes and offerings in the Old Testament signal God's blessing and benefit the worshiper. Tithes and offerings signal God's blessing and benefit the worshiper. There are some passages in the Old Testament that do say things like tithe and you will be blessed. But most of the passages say we give our tithes and our offerings because we have been blessed. Most of them say we do this because we've already been blessed. 
that those who are able to bring these kinds of resources are those who've been given land and who've been given animals and have been able to work and have had crop come in and have had things happen, have had livestock give birth, who've experienced God's blessing and therefore they bring that blessing as an act of worship, not as a means of trying to manipulate God into getting more but as a way of recognizing with gratitude how freely God has given to us. There's a sense that it signals God's blessing. And secondly, the part that maybe is talked about the least is it actually benefits the worshiper. That we find Deuteronomy 12, 7. It says, and you shall bring all of these offerings, all of these sacrifices, these ties in, and it says, and you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your households together, rejoicing in all the undertakings in which the Lord your God has already blessed you. And this is, I think, the least uh, discussed aspect of this is that when worshipers in the Old Testament come and they offer their tithes, they offer sacrifices, they bring animals and those things to worship God, then a significant portion of that comes back to them and they eat it right then and there in the presence of God as a sort of party, as a celebration. It's not simply that all of it simply goes out, but there is sort of a benefit that comes back. That when we give inside of a local fellowship, this is, I think, now true for us today, we have to recognize that this does benefit us. There are certain things that we're giving to because we're also receiving. That there is a reciprocation that comes in. And so one of the, this is financial giving then in a local church is one of the ways we contribute and enter into this sort of family and community relationship with one another. And that there's a, re, a reciprocation of giving and receiving throughout the entire congregation. Along with our time and our skills and our spiritual gifts, we bring our financial resources This helps us to remember as we're giving and receiving that church is a community or a family that we belong to, not simply a commodity that we go to and consume. That church is a community or a family that we belong to and therefore participate in and contribute to rather than just some place we go to consume, but we actually bring part of what's being enjoyed to the table that we're contributing to the meal as well. All right, last point here. Then number seven in the Old Testament, we find that giving is always an opportunity for rejoicing. That in the Old Testament, when we talk about giving, it's always presented as a celebration and not a chore, as a privilege, as a way of participating with God, not in some dictatorial sort of like demand and law and rigid sort of stipulation, but a celebration of who God is and what God has done and the fact that we've been given so much. So we find this like in Deuteronomy 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you together with your sons and your daughters and your male and female slaves and the Levites who are in your town, everybody coming together and rejoicing in this shared meal. We find this then carrying over in like Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians. He said, everyone should give whatever they've decided in their heart. They shouldn't give with hesitation or because of pressure, but instead God loves a cheerful giver. 
Paul's pulling on Deuteronomy here and saying, yes, it's joyous to give. That's why at New Life Downtown, as cheesy as it might be at times, we call it joy time. (laughs) It's a way of remembering that, of saying, yes, we don't give out of coercion. We don't give hesitantly. We don't give because we've been pressured to give, but we give as an act of worship, and we're worshiping God with the things that he has given us. It's a cause for joy and celebration. And he goes on in that passage and I think says maybe one of the most profound things uh, that we find about giving in the New Testament. It says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says, God loves a cheerful giver because God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind kind of grace. And then he goes on and says something even, I think, exceptionally radical. He says, that way you will have everything you need always and in everything for what? To provide more than enough for every kind of good work. God gives us more than enough of every kind of grace so that we have more than enough for every good work. Doesn't say we have more than enough in our lives for us ourselves, but more than enough for every kind of good work that we can participate with him and his in-breaking kingdom of the world, that we get caught up in it. This includes getting caught up in his story with our finances. See, he has the power to provide for us, not simply what we need. Yes, he does provide us our daily bread, but he also provides us what we need for every kind of good work. He provides more than enough so that we can provide more than enough for others. And we embody this every week when we come to the table. This moment of coming forward to the table and the words that we surround this with helps us kind of imagine what this looks like. That we come to the table, and as we come, we say a prayer that goes like this. Father, we offer ourselves as a holy and living sacrifice. We offer ourselves as a sacrifice. The language there comes from the Leviticus language of a whole burnt offering. That we no longer offer whole animals being burned up an altar but instead we offer our whole lives to God. Every part of us, including our finances. We bring all of it in. We give it all in worship. And what does God give us in return? He gives us all of himself. We come to the table and receive the body and the blood of Christ. He gives us more than enough He gives us himself, all of himself, sacrificing himself for us, giving us the Holy Spirit and continuing to bless us and provide for us in incredible ways so that we can participate with him in every kind of good work. So we come to the table and we bring all of us and what we receive in return is all of Jesus. And we always find ourselves being overwhelmed by God's grace in the way that sends us out into the world 
to continue to participate with him in ways that change our lives and change others. Amen?